Hello, I'm Derek Walker. I'm the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church. And as we bring this series on intercession to a close, uh, this time and next time, I want to share with you about the purpose and the power of fasting, of adding fasting to your prayers. Biblically, fasting isn't just abstaining from food, but it's actually abstaining from food voluntarily for spiritual purposes. Without that spiritual ingredient, it isn't really fasting, it's just dieting. And so, instead of uh, eating extra time that you gain through not having to prepare food and all the rest of it, and the time taken by your stomach to absorb the food, uh, which makes you a, a little less active, um, that extra time is given to seeking God through prayer and the Word. So, and we're going to see that fasting boosts and reinforces prayer. Uh, it's of no value just on its own, but it will boost your prayer. The Old Testament and the New Testament teach fasting as something that God's people should do. Um, generally, it isn't like commanded that you must do it on a certain time, but it's something you ought to do. The one exception, actually, was in the Old Testament, the law of Moses uh, commanded Jews to fast once a year, one day a year, on the Day of Atonement. And we'll talk about that later, but this all shows that fasting is part of God's will for his people. Now in the New Testament, we are free to fast when, uh, you know, we're free to choose when we fast, but we are expected to fast because Jesus said, when you fast. So he expects us to fast. The essence of fasting is that it's a, a God-ordained and it's a most effective method for humbling yourself. The key verse really is Psalm 35 verse 13, which says, I humbled my soul with fasting. So fasting is a method to humble our soul. That tells us that fasting isn't something that impresses God, that changes God. It's designed to change us, to humble our soul, to get us in position to receive from God. So it changes us rather than God. Fasting sensitizes us to the Spirit, and it helps us get into position to hear, and to receive, and to move in God's answer, in God's power. Now, Jesus' teaching goes to the very heart of this issue of fasting, which is the need to have the right motives in fasting, because it's all about humbling the soul. So it's not a religious exercise, it's, it's a way of dealing with yourself and getting your soul in, in, right, in the right place. And so the motives of, in the fast are vital. It isn't to impress people or God, but it's to humble ourselves so that God can flow through us. So fasting is a tool to humble one's soul, or one's ego in particular, not just the body. It's not just a matter of humbling the body, but it's humbling the soul. So, for example, if your fasting is ego-driven, you know, to, to, to look good in a religious way, or to get your own way, to force God you to do something for you, then it's not really a godly fast and it won't produce good fruit. So let's see Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6. 
And here he's talking about the Christian duties of giving, of praying, and of fasting. And so let's quickly see what he says first about giving. Take, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And so then in verse 5, he goes on to talk about prayer. Again, he says, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues on the corners of the streets, that they might be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your innermost room. When you shut your door, pray to your Father who's in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And then he goes and talks about fasting. And again, he's mostly concerned about the motives involved in this. Verse 16, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Now, this is very interesting. There's two physical procedures that they were to do. They were to wash their face. This is talking about cleansing. And it's interesting that part of what a fast does in the physical sense is that, it, especially as you drink a lot of water, you, you can cleanse your body of toxins over a period of time in that fast. But also, this is a picture of a spiritual cleansing that takes place when you fast. There's a removal of spiritual toxins, because as when you fast, then what will happen is the things, the issues in your soul will come to the surface, and you will be able to remove those toxins through repentance. And so... Washing the face, in a way, you can do by faith, is a picture that in the fast you're coming to God and wanting God to cleanse you. The second thing was that they, they anointed their head. And again, it's a picture that in the fast you are dedicating yourself to God and you're asking God to give you a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's the purpose of the fast. You're bringing yourself to God, positioning yourself for that fresh anointing. And so... Those physical actions are a picture that you do in faith of what God, what the fast is really all about. And he says, you do this so that, verse 18, you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who is in secret will reward you openly. And so there is a reward to the fast. The Father will reward you if you do it with the right motive. He says, do not lay up for yourself um, treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. How do you lay up treasures in heaven? By doing the things he's been talking about, through your giving, through your praying, through your fasting. And so he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so what we see from this is that Jesus expects us to fast. He says, when you fast. And that tells us that we can't be 100% in God's will. 
without fasting. And so fasting is sometimes necessary, not as a religious exercise, but to reinforce our prayers, to get our eyes on the Lord, to, to bring our flesh under. Uh, it's not an optional extra, it is necessary sometimes. And that we see that there's a reward, uh, a blessing. He says, the Father will reward you. Uh, not just with treasures in heaven, although that's part of the reward, but he'll reward you openly before men. And, uh, and so that's interesting that the fast also turns our heart towards God, because it says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So when you fast, what you're really saying is, God, you're my real treasure. You're the one that is the most important in my life. And so I say no to these other things of the flesh so that I can focus on you. And then, it, then that brings your heart closer to God. And there will be a blessing released as a result. So it helps focus our heart to God. Let's turn to Mark chapter 2. They said, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said, can the friends of the bridegroom, that's his disciples, fast while the bridegroom, Jesus, is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And so Jesus' disciples didn't fast so much, and they were asked about that. And Jesus said it wasn't necessary, because it's fasting, you see, is all to do with the presence of Jesus, the presence of the bridegroom. While they had Jesus with them, they had direct access to him and so and, and to the Spirit of God upon him, and so fasting wasn't needed. But Jesus said the day is coming when the bridegroom will be taken away, which will, is in the ascension. And then, he says, they will fast in those days. So here he says they will fast in the church age. But this also reveals a, a principle of fasting uh, that it's all to do with the presence of Jesus. And as a rule of thumb, when should you fast? It's when the bridegroom is absent. It's when the presence of Jesus isn't so close. That's when you need to fast because unbelief has come in and a veil over your heart that means you're not so aware of his presence. That's when you should fast. It helps us draw near to God by denying our flesh and changing our over focus on the natural and bringing us to a place where we become more aware of the spiritual. You know we do that in prayer often we close our eyes in prayer don't we? What are we doing? We're shutting out the natural light so that we can focus the better in, in the spiritual and in a way fasting closes down those natural desires and that natural information so that we can focus more strongly on the Lord. So it boosts our praying. And so the disciples of Jesus do fast. Remember Jesus said, he who believes in me, the works I do, they shall do also. And one of the works he did was fasting. And we actually see that in the ministry of Jesus. Not just his 40-day fast, of course, in the wilderness, but the Messianic Psalms also talk about that he fasted. Psalm 69, it says, Zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, humbled his soul with fasting, that became my reproach. So the Messiah would fast. 
Psalm 109 says, my knees are weak through fasting. And my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. And this is talking about Jesus in his last days particularly. But he, he, he had been fasting. And Jesus sets, therefore, the pattern for our life and ministry. We know, of course, what happened in Luke 4, that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And he was tempted 40 days by the devil, and he ate nothing. And then he was hungry. Notice, he did drink water. It just says he was hungry. So a normal fast is a denial of food, but you still should drink water. In fact, it's dangerous not to drink water for an extended period of time. And then it says in verse 14, then he returned in the power of the Spirit. So I want you to notice that he, the Spirit of God was not fully released through him. He didn't do miracles until first he was filled with the Spirit, but second, that he fasted. And so fasting is a key to the release of the Spirit, to the power of the Spirit being manifested. And if Jesus needed to fast, then perhaps we also need to do that. Fasting and prayer was a necessary preparation for him to enter his ministry. It helped the release of the Spirit in his life. And, and so to move into the fullness of our ministry, fasting will play a role. Fasting helps to remove the blockages in us to the release of the power of God. It was, of course, essential for him to fast in preparation for the, sh the showdown he had with Satan. Because Satan tried to use the desires of his flesh to tempt him to sin and get out of God's will. And so fasting helps to bring our flesh into subjection so it doesn't control us. And so God requires us to humble ourselves before him. And and he's given us a very simple, practical way we can do that, and that's fasting. Matthew 23, Jesus said, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We have to humble ourselves. Matthew 18, Whoever humbles himself as this little child will be the greatest in the kingdom. James says, that Submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded means you've got faith, but you've also got unbelief. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. These verses, you know, there's a false teaching that you don't need to repent. You never don't need to confess your sins. I, don't, I think the people who teach that haven't read James chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 5 says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and that he may exalt you in due time. And so we must humble ourselves if we want God to move in our life to exalt us. It's our initiative to humble ourselves, and fasting is the divinely ordained way by which we can humble ourselves. It helps us to humble ourselves. Psalm 35, he says, I humbled myself with fasting. Psalm 69, I chastened my soul with fasting. And on the Day of Atonement, that was called the fast in uh, Acts 27, verse 9. That was an important part of the Day of Atonement. They had to fast. And then it's mentioned in the New Testament where they say sailing it was now dangerous because the fast was already over. That's the Day of Atonement. And the description of this in Leviticus 16, it says, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, 
and you shall afflict your souls. That's the definition there of fasting. And so you see, on the Day of Atonement, God, through the sacrifices, made a total, final atonement for, for Israel for that year. And he provided that blood, provided that atonement and every blessing. But it was also vital that Israel, God's people, were in position to receive the blessings of that atonement. And, and so it was a day of repentance and faith for them. And so God ordained a fast day for that. How? Why? It was to help them re repent and be right with God and be able to receive the blessings that were given to them. And so it talks about afflicting the soul. That means don't expect to enjoy the fast naturally. Now, you'll enjoy it spiritually. Very possibly you'll enjoy a, a new lease of spiritual life, but don't expect uh, naturally to enjoy it because it is a day of humbling of, or afflicting your soul. But you will receive great blessings. Let me say, though, if, if, you, if sometimes you, somebody might feel bad or ill because they've got a medical condition. If you've got a medical condition, check with your doctor first before you do any serious fasting. When we humble ourselves before God, we put ourselves in position for him to move in our lives. You see, the problem is that before the fall, man had effortless communion with God. The natural desires that we have were in subjection to the spirit. And, and the strongest thing was our spiritual desire for communion with God. And that's ruled the heart of man. And so the natural desires were in their right place. But since the fall of man, our flesh pulls us away from the life in this, of the Spirit. It, its desires operate independently, and they tug on our heart to pull on our heart in opposition to our spiritual desires. As Galatians says, the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so you don't do the things that you wish. And the more we obey the flesh, the more we close the door on the flow of God's life. And we actually have to make an effort of will to humble ourselves, to humble our flesh, to open the door for God to move in our lives. And prayer helps us to do that. And fasting reinforces and boosts that prayer by, by denying our, ourselves. It's not to impress God or to twist his arm. It's to change us. It's a way of keeping our flesh under so that the spirit has dominance. And so it opens a channel through which God can move in our life. And it helps the manifestation of our prayers. You know, if the flesh dominates us, what's in the spirit cannot manifest so easily in the natural. Because unbelief is a blockage that gets in the way. We're so tuned into the natural that we've lost sight of spiritual realities. And fasting helps to break the dominance of the flesh so that we can see by faith the blessings of God and possess them. Fasting must be combined with extra prayer to be effective. So two things happen. When you fast, you don't have to spend all the time preparing the food and the rest of it. So that gives you more time to pray. But also, so you, there's more prayer, more study of the word. But at the same time, through your fasting, you're denying your flesh. So you're working on both ends of the problem. You're building up your faith, but you're, and you're removing the unbelief. 
And fasting moves you from the natural realm to the supernatural realm. It shifts the balance of your life. Mostly, we're too far over here on the natural side, too consumed with natural things. Fasting is a way in which we can restore that balance. Because we live in two realms, the natural realm and the spiritual realm. And so we need to be able to do that. You see, whatever you focus your attention on, whatever you meditate on, that will dominate you. And if our focus is on the flesh, we'll just see the problems and we'll get more of them. But when we move our focus onto the spirit, we can see the solution and the power of God can move into our life. And so prayer focuses us on the Lord and fasting actually reinforces this by actually make we say no to an elemental or the elemental desire of the flesh for food. I want to go to a story that really illustrates the importance of fasting to remove unbelief and to connect with God's life. And it's in Mark 9 and also in Matthew 17. And this is a man who asked Jesus to deliver his epileptic son. His disciples had already failed in this. They had faith, but the problem is they had unbelief, natural unbelief. Jesus, they, they knew Jesus gave them power over demons, but for some reason they couldn't cast this demon out. Let's go to Matthew 17, first of all. It says, When they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O oh, faithless, that means unbelieving, and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus seems to be quite upset by unbelief. And this is mostly the unbelief in his disciples. The problem of unbelief actually was revealed because in Mark 9.20 it says that when they brought this boy to Jesus, the same thing would have happened with the disciples, that the spirit convulsed him, he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming at the mouth. So you see, that dramatic event would have happened and if the disciples were not spiritually in shape, they would have been so impressed by this physical epileptic uh, event that unbelief would have flooded their hearts. And so that's what happened. There are three kinds of unbelief. You, there is ignorant, the unbelief of ignorance, and the answer to that is to hear the word. There's the unbelief of rebellion. You know the word, but you deliberately reject it. And the only solution for that is repentance. But there's a third kind of unbelief that most of us have to deal with most of the time. It's natural unbelief. It comes in when we are too dominated by the sense knowledge. We're too focused on the natural things. And this causes us to uh, doubt to enter into our heart. And so when we see things happen that seem to contradict God's word, as they did with this boy, then this unbelief shuts our faith down. And we, we think, oh, it doesn't work. God can't answer this prayer. The natural reality seems so strong in our thinking. And that's because of natural unbelief. We're more focused on the, the problem than we are on God's promise and God's answer. And so it's because our meditation has been too much in the natural realm. And then we get overwhelmed by the sense evidence. We believe the word, yes, but we believe our senses more. And that unbelief stops our faith working. The voice of the flesh has become too strong.
And so in Mark 9, we see what happens next. So he asked, Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said from childhood. And often he's thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help, help remove my unbelief. And the father understood that the problem was unbelief, blocking the flow of God's power. And that unbelief had to be removed. You see, you can have faith and unbelief at the same time. Faith and unbelief can exist together. And um, we read in Matthew 17 what happens next. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. That was the problem. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. So the problem was not a lack of faith. They only need a mustard seed of faith and they could have done it. The problem was that unbelief had got into their heart. And, and so the demon wasn't the problem. It's not that the demon needed an extra amount of power to remove it. The problem was the unbelief in their heart. And that's why in verse 21 it says, however, this kind, not this kind of demon, but this kind of unbelief, natural unbelief, this kind of unbelief does not go out except by prayer and fasting. The unbelief of ignorance comes out through hearing the word. The unbelief of rebellion comes out through repentance but the natural unbelief only comes out through prayer and fasting and so what they would need to do to remove that unbelief is to pray seek God with prayer and mix that with fasting and that helps to remove the dominance of the of the natural senses the voice of the flesh and tune into the voice of the spirit and then their faith would be free from that unbelief and they they could have uh, cast that demon out and so Sometimes we need to add fasting to our prayers so that we can remove that unbelief and connect with the power of God. I'd like to introduce you to two of my books that will lead you into a deep understanding of God's Word. The Panorama of Prophecy is my big book on end-time prophecy. It gives all the, the prophecies of the Bible and it will take you step by step into exploring this exciting part of God's Word. And also, the keys of time is the Bible chronology that describes the Bible from beginning to end and it, in its perfect timing, showing the sovereignty of God. You can get these books from www.oxfordbiblechurch.co.uk or by phoning us at 01865 515 086. Thank you for watching. You can watch more of our teachings on our Oxford Bible Church Roku channel and Derek Walker YouTube channel. You're most welcome to join us at our church services which are every Sunday at 11am and 6pm at Cheney School, Headington, Oxford, OX3 7QH. You can order CDs, DVDs, books and other great products from our online shop at www.oxfordbiblechurch.co.uk where you can also make a donation to our ministry or contact us on 01865 515086